0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We're going to cover in this audio Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Now, in this section, Paul is showing his personal personal love for the Galatians, his grief that they're not flying right. In verses 1 through 7, the context of our current section, Paul talked about the Galatians being sons and heirs, not a son that's under the... Legal restrictions of the law, but a son who has actually received the inheritance. And in this section, he's going to talk about his personal grief that the Galatians have been seduced by these disgusting legalizers, Judaizers, and legalists in Galatia. So let's get started. Galatians 4 8, Paul says this, But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Now, again, the you there, it Paul sometimes is talking to the Jews in Galatia. Maybe he's talking to the Gentiles and the Jews in Galatia. I think in the previous section, verses 1 through 7, he was talking to the Jews only because he talked about sons being enslaved by the law. He says a son that is under the law is like a slave. A son who has not received his inheritance yet because he's under the law is like, because he's under a testamentary guardian, is like a slave who doesn't have the inheritance that sounds like he's talking about Jews. Some people say he's talk, he was talking about the Gentiles, too, because of this verse here, verse 8. He says, because when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things by nature and not gods, which, of course, is idols. Things that are not gods are not idols. So either way, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're enslaved until you're free in Christ. Now, when Paul says you were enslaved to things that by nature are not gods, he could have said you are enslaved to things that by nature are air quote, gods. In other words, they call themselves gods, but they're not really gods. Now, of course, Gentiles were noted for serving idols, and so Adam Clark says that Paul is now talking, is at least acknowledging that some of the Galatians were Gentile converts, although most of the Galatians were Jews, Adam Clark says. I don't know how he knows that. I take his word for it. They were either Jews or proselytes to Judaism, Clark says. Now, let's look at the scripture that other scriptures that show that idols claim to be gods, but they're not really gods. 1 Corinthians 8.4, about eating food offered to idols, then we know that, quote, an idol is nothing in the world, unquote, and that there is no God but one. An idol is nothing. 1 Corinthians 10.19, what am I saying then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. The expected answer is no, of course not. An idol is nothing. And food offered to the idol is nothing. 2 Chronicles 13.9 Didn't you banish the priests of Yahweh, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and make your own priest like the peoples of other lands do? This is God chastising the Israelites on one of their many occasions of idolatry. God continues, Whoever comes to ordain himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. An idol is called a not-God. And so, these Galatians were enslaved to that. They knew they were enslaved. They had experienced freedom in Christ. Paul, again, is appealing to the experience, their experience their as Christians to get them out of the legalism, because he's going to say, Hey, you remember how great it was? Now, how does all this death and slavery and bondage, how are you liking it? Now, Paul said in the past, these Galatians did not know God. These Gentile Galatians didn't know God when they were worshiping so-called gods i.e. idols well how do you reconcile they didn't know god with romans 121 it says for well, though they knew god sounds like a direct contradiction for though they knew god. and this is again paul talking about gentiles in romans 1 for though they knew god they didn't they did not glorify him as god or show gratitude instead their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened well how do you reconcile that jameson Foster brown does it this way he says well the heathen originally did know god but as time went on, they didn't retain their knowledge of him as their minds became progressively darkened. And so in Romans, when Paul says, though they knew God, he meant pagans knew God at the very beginning of history. But then as time went on, they didn't. I don't think that's a good way to reconcile it, in my humble opinion. In my view, it's the reconciliation should be done this way. In the Romans, the heathens knew that God existed, for though they knew God, i.e. they knew that God existed, but they didn't know him personally. Just like the Galatians are now not did not know God personally before, and when they became Christians, they knew him, God personally, but they didn't know him personally before they became saved. so Paul in Galatians four eight says in the past when you didn't know God personally, I take it, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's, but then the implication is now that you know God personally, you are not enslaved. so why would you want to go back to the state of slavery? We go to Galatians four: nine but now, in other words now that you are a Christian, but now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Now, the weak and bankrupt elemental forces is a fancy way of saying the law, or legalistic principles, either the Mosaic Law or traditions that derive from the Mosaic Law as manufactured by the Pharisees. NIV study Bible says that these... These Galatians were in danger of becoming enslaved to, quote, legalistic trust in rituals, moral achievement in law, in good works, or even in cold, dead orthodoxy. Yes, legalism's ugly. And, of course, what's the result? Slavery. He mentions that word slavery again. Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You got free from it. Why do you want to go back to it? Now, Paul says you know God now. You didn't know God when you were a Idolater and now that you become a Christian you do know God. And then he immediately puts an interesting qualification on it. He says, Yeah, you know God or rather have become known by God, because you see, in order for us to know God, God's got to know us first. That's a nice thing for Armenians to contemplate. We do not seek him, but he seeks us first. Paul always puts the the focus of initiative on God rather than humans since you know God or rather have become known by God that's what happened first because you don't get to know God unless he knows you first it's like any relationship deep relationships are a two-way street if one person in a relationship doesn't want to be known the other party can do nothing well if i'm sitting here sunk in my sins and i don't want to know God God ain't going to have a relationship with me and so he has got God has got to reach down and say look at here open up your heart dumbhead and Know who I am, and then I know who you are, and then the person responds, and then he knows God, and then they have a two-way relationship. Notice that these elemental forces, by the way, that Greek word is storkia. It's the same word that Peter used when he says the elemental forces of the world would be burnt up. John Owen, the Puritan divine, 16th century Cambridge professor, says that that refers to the burning up of the law. On the day of the Lord, the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy, when the perpetrators of the law, the Jewish kingdom of Jerusalem, was burnt to the ground. That is a minority view because everybody says, Oh, the elemental 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 principles of the world, or the earth, air, wind and fire, the the physical pieces of nature, the physical parts of nature that burn up. But I'm telling you, you look it up in in any concordance, I think there's about nine instances of that Greek word. It always refers to the law. Eight times clearly refers to the law, just like here. And in that place in Second Peter 2, people are trying to tell us that refers to the elemental materialistic foundations of the world. And I don't believe it. I believe it's referred to the law. And notice here that Paul says that these elemental forces, the law, are weak these principles of the law are weak and bankrupt because that's what the law does. It cannot make you righteous. It cannot make you sanctified. It cannot get you saved. It cannot get you holy because it's weak. It's bankrupt. A firm that is bankrupt has no market power. It can do nothing except sit back and wait until the vultures come to the bankruptcy court and pick over the bones. And that's what the law can do for you. Nothing. It can enslave you, make you miserable, Now, notice Paul is, again, talking about people who are going back under the law. Is he talking to Jews, or is he talking to Gentiles? Well, you know, it really doesn't matter. If he's talking to Jewish Christians, they could be going back under the law, and Gentile Christians could be going under the law, really, for the first time. I don't know. Paul here says that you're being enslaved to them all over again, so it sounds like he's talking about Jews who were enslaved to the law, and now they're going back again. But he could be referring to the law of the conscience in Romans 1, the law of conscience. And you want to be enslaved to that all over again? I don't know. He's kind of unclear. But the point is, his law is slavery. Adam Clark says that Paul could be talking to Gentiles serving idols, as we mentioned in verse 8. It makes it sound like that. It doesn't sound like he was talking to Jews. He was talking to Gentiles who then were becoming proselytes and putting themselves under the law. But again, the problem with that, he says, again, enslaved them. Again enslaved, do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? See if these were Gentiles becoming proselytes, this would be the first time that they would be enslaved with the law. So in my opinion he's probably he's, he's referring back to Jews, Jewish Christians again, that's a kind of a murky subject. It doesn't really matter. The point is is that everybody is enslaved. If you try to put yourself under the law, you are enslaved. Now we go to Galatians four verse ten. Paul says, You observe special days, months, seasons, and years. And again, he's talking to the Judaizers, the legalists. Again, he could be referring both to Jews or Gentiles. He could be referring to Jews, of course, and then Gentiles who have become proselytes and are getting all hopped up on Jewish feast days, on new moons, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the first fruits, all that stuff, all that Jewish stuff that's in the law. And years, that could be the Sabbath year, that's in the Old Testament. Months, every month they had a new moon festival. A special day would be the Sabbath day or maybe the day of atonement. The seasons would probably be Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, the Feast of Passover in the spring, and Feast of Pentecost in the early summer. But at any rate, it's Jewish stuff he's talking about. And when he says you observe them, he doesn't mean to be saying that it's wrong to observe these things culturally. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, remember it, he's, he was telling the Corinthians, "I've got to be back in Jerusalem by Passover." So he obviously was he had a desire to that that feast meant something for them. Maybe it was just an opportunity for evangelism, but he, you know there was nothing wrong with observing the Passover as a cultural thing. But if you want to observe special days like Passovers in order to to be good, a good little Christian so that God will accept you and so that God will save you and so that God will sanctify you. Well, to heck with that. Paul is opposed to it. He says in verse 11, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. All that work he did getting them saved. Now they're running right back into Judaism. That must have been kind of disgusting. Now notice that Paul says he's fearful. This is something that name it and claim it blab it and grab it, scream it and redeem it, mark it and park it. Copeland Haganites ought to take notice of. I am fearful of you. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, I can hear him say, well, Paul sinned. I can hear him now. Paul expressed fear. That's a human emotion. Faith does not contradict normal human emotions. Now, we'll notice that there is a difference between concern and fear. Fear in the sense of terror. Paul's not saying, I'm fearful in the sense, I am terrorized. I go to bed at night and And anguish because I'm scared the devil's going to destroy me and I'm just going to work, ruin all my work. I don't think that's what he means by this fear here. I think he means fear, he's fearful for them in the sense of being concerned for them. Being concerned means you focus on a problem. You realize that something is wrong and it might get worse. And then you deal with the normal negative emotions one has when something is wrong. But that doesn't mean you walk around shaking in your boots. And all the while you're dealing with all this stuff you know that God is sovereign and he can and will handle the situation. So that's how I would reconcile fear and faith. You know, Jesus said, don't worry. So then when Paul says, I'm fearful, whenever he says that, I immediately think, well, is he contradicting the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if he was, hey, he's a human being. He's, he's an apostle. His words are inspired and inerrant, but not his actions, not his emotions. So maybe he was sinful here. Maybe he shouldn't have been worried about him. Or maybe he's just ex- being a human being, expressing his normal emotions. That is a hard question. I'll leave it with you. Galatians 4:12. I beg you, brothers, become like me for all. I also became like you. You have not wronged me. Now, this verse is a little opaque on first glance. But first of all, let's point out he calls the Galatians brothers. He's still emphasizing that he loves them, despite the harsh tone of the letter. I mean, he's really laid into them, as, as you know. He's called them fools twice in chapter 3. But they're still his brothers. He says, become like me. In other words, free from the law. As John Gill, Adam Clark, and James Foster, and Brown all say, become like me, become free from the law. Adam Clark says it could be, become loving to me as I am to you. Become like me, i.e. a loving person. Love me. Well, I don't think so. I think he's saying, be free from the law just like I am. For I also became like you. Well, when did Paul become like them? Well, probably. This is from John Gill. He was born and raised a Jew, just like you Galatian Jews were. And... So, in the sense of I became a Jew, in the sense I was raised up in it, I became a Jew, just like you are. I became a person under the law, just like you. Now, if I can do that and then get out of it, why don't you get out of it and become like me like I am now? I became a legalist, and now I'm out of it. You can become like me and become a free man, free from the law, an anti-legalist, if you will. John Gill says that Paul is pointing to the fact that before he was saved, he was just as much into the law as the Galatian Jews are now. He says, I came like you. Hey, you know, I I understand the attractions of the law, but I got out of it, so why don't you become like me and get out of it too? All right, that's a little bit hard to see what he's getting at there. But now let's look at the last phrase he says in this verse 12 of Galatians 4. You have not wronged me. Well, now at first glance you think, well, wait a minute. Yes, they have They've completely shafted his gospel of free grace. They've torn down the foundations of liberty that Paul has laid in the Galatian churches. That's not wronging Paul. Why does he say you have not wronged me? Well, there's a couple of options to explain that. John Gill says that what Paul means is, you have not wronged me. You've injured God. You've injured Jesus. You didn't wrong me. Now, what he means is, you didn't wrong me by comparison to what you did to God and to what you did to Jesus. So... That would explain that the Galatians actually did wrong Paul, but it was just by comparison. He didn't wrong Paul as much as he wronged God. Here's how Adam Clark puts it. I do not thus earnestly entreat you to return to your Christian profession because your perversion has been any loss to me, nor because your conversion can be to me any gain. You have not injured me at all. You only injure yourselves. So when he says, you have not wronged me, that's another option, actually, is you have not wronged me, you've wronged God, or you have not wronged me, you've wronged yourselves. He doesn't mean he hasn't wronged Paul absolutely, it just means relative to the damage you've done to God and to yourselves. And Paul says this to the Galatians in this sense. He's saying, I'm telling you, Galatians, this so that you don't think I'm just complaining about my personal anger and resentment. It's not. It's not you wronging me that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about you wronging God and wronging yourselves. Here's another option to explain that phrase, you have not wronged me. This is from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Paul is saying this, look, I laid aside all my legalism, all my Jewish stuff when I lived among the Gentiles and by going amongst the Gentiles, thus showing that I don't need the law to be saved. Now, when I did that, you didn't give me any grief. You didn't wrong me. You have not wronged me when I did that. So now, why are you giving me so much grief now when I'm teaching you the same thing, that legalism is not the way to go? Interesting way to interpret that. I don't think he's right. Oh, well, it could be. i give you two options there. All right, let me repeat that. Option number one, you have not wronged me. You have rather wronged God, Jesus, in yourself. That's one way to look at it. Option number two, you have not wronged me and gotten upset with me when I got rid of my Jewish legalism before, and I taught you freedom, free grace before, and liberty in Christ before. You didn't get upset with me then. You didn't say anything bad about me then. Why are you doing it now? I think both options are equally plausible. We go to verse 13 of Galatians 4. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. Now, when did he previously preach the gospel to the Galatians? Well, that depends. One option is uh, on Paul's first missionary journey. That's assuming that the South Galatian theory is correct. South Galatian churches would be Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so he says, hey, I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. Or it could be that he preached the gospel to them on his second visit to the Galatian churches, which occurred right after the second journey and is recorded in Acts 18.23 which says this, and after spending some time there, this is after the second journey, he comes back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the Galatian territory in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So that could be when he had preached to them because of a physical illness. I don't know, preaching the gospel sounds like he's preaching to unsaved people, so I'm going to assume it was on the first journey, whether it was the southern Galatian churches or the northern Galatian churches. Now, what's this physical illness? Here's some options. Then I've Bible. Says Paul might have had some eye trouble when he was preaching the gospel to the Galatians. Galatians 4:15. He says this. What happened to the sense of being blessed you had? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Well, Paul could have just been hyperbolic there in the abstract, or he might be referring to the fact he needed some new eyes, and the Galatians would have. Torn out their eyes, metaphorically speaking, tore out their eyes and given them to Paul to take place of his messed up eyes. That's a reasonable speculation. Galatians 6.11, look at what large letters I used to write you in my own handwriting. That sounds like he had some kind of eye infection, eye problem, was writing big so he could see. But that's just speculation. That's the NIV study Bible speculation. Jameson, and and Brown, on the contrary, speculate that Paul's physical illness was because of the bright light on the road to Damascus. Now think about that. Jesus blinds him with bright light, and then he sends Ananias in Damascus to pray for Paul so that Paul would receive his sight again and to, be, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul receives his sight, but his eyes are still screwed up. Now that sounds like God, Jesus is a not the great physician, but a malpractice physician. <laughs> I mean, come on. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that is nuts. I don't believe that for a minute. Some people speculated malaria, as the NIV study Bible mentions. I don't know why. Some people speculate epilepsy. Some people say it's Paul's famous thorn in the flesh. And, now, of course, I point out to you that many people speculate about the thorn in the flesh, and many of those speculations have nothing to do with the physical illness, so we don't know. This is in 2 Corinthians twelve seven. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself because of the extraordinary revelations that Paul received, a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan, to torment me or to buffet my flesh, as the King James has, so I would not exalt myself. Well, we don't know what it was. But the interesting thing is, is that this because, why would a physical illness be the cause of Paul preaching to the gospel to the Galatians? Well, here's some options because of that. Well, here's a one speculation. Why? It's because the sickness detained him among the Galatians, contrary to his original intentions, and so he stayed there to preach the gospel. And that makes sense. We don't know when that was. It's not recorded in Acts anywhere, exactly. But that's a possibility. The word there is translated because in lots of translations, Christian Standard, NIV, Montgomery New Testament, New American Bible, New American Standard Bible, the Weymouth Translation, the American Standard Version. But there are some versions that translate that because of a physical illness as through a physical illness. I preach the gospel to you through a physical illness. Now, that could mean the idea that Paul preached the gospels, he evangelized the Galatians through his sickness. In other words, while he was sick, even though he was sick, through that sickness, I persevered on to preach the gospel. Now, the King James Version, the Mason Translation, the Young's Literal Translation, and the Darby Translation translates that as in. I. I preach to you the gospel in a physical illness. In other words, in the midst of a physical illness, I preach to you. So it could go either way. We're not going to put up a pillbox on a hill and defend that one because it's of minor importance. Now, here's a little theological point. Paul does say, whatever this illness was, he does say he has a physical illness. Now, it's interesting. Cessationists love to say, see, the apostles, they had all these miracles. They could strike people blind. They could they could strike people dead. And And they could heal people on demand. And they could just go around and woo! Because they got special powers because they're apostles. But today, ordinary Christians don't have this power. And so they're foolish to make claims that they can heal people on demand. As As if people say that, you know. I'm not talking about the fakers. I'm talking about real people who have real gifts of healing. They don't go around saying that every time they pray for somebody, they're healed. Or if they do, they're foolish because everybody knows that's not true. They just know that a lot of times they are, but not always. Well... Take it back to Paul's time. If Paul had the ability to heal on demand, why didn't he heal himself on demand? He was sick, which just goes to show that praying in faith is not magic. A prayer in faith is always subject to God's overriding purposes. Paul had faith, and people today have faith for healing. That doesn't mean that people are healed every time. and It doesn't mean that they've missed God or or anything like that. And It certainly doesn't mean that miracles have died out in the post-apostolic age. Galatians 4 verse 14, you did not deprive, despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, Paul is talking about the good old days when he was with the Galatians, which is either on the first journey or after the second journey. When I say after the second journey, I'm referring to Acts 28:13, when Paul says... I'm sorry acts eighteen verse twenty three when Paul says, after spending some time there in Antioch, he set out travelling through one place after another in the Galatian territory. That's all we know of his travels through Galatia on the after the second journey and the first if it's the first journey, well, then it would be the southern Galatian churches whenever the Galatian churches did not despise or reject him, even though his physical condition was a trial now, what does that mean? Does that mean? We're going to take you or we're not going to take you. We're going to try you, Paul. We're going to accept you or not accept you. No, that's not what it means. It means, that was John Gill's idea, and I think that's nuts. I, what what it, he means is, my being sick was a trial for you because you had to take care of me. It's a lot of trouble. I was trouble for you. Sick people are trouble. You have to take care of them. And Paul says, you took care of me lovingly. Why you rejected, back then, why you rejecting me now by becoming a legalist, a Judaizer? On the contrary, back then, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Angel of God, he, Paul could be speaking meta, uh, hyperbolically. Of course, Paul's not an actual, physical, literal angel. He could be doing that, or it could be translated as a messenger of God. He was a literal messenger of God. Either way, he was received as Christ Jesus himself, because when Jesus sends his ambassadors, you receive an ambassador, you receive the principal who sent the ambassador. And folks, there are a lot of people in your life that you will meet that you might as well be receiving Jesus because they minister Christ to you. They're godly people. They're usually not famous. They're usually not wealthy. They're usually, and they're always not proud. They're humble people, but they know a lot about Jesus because they've spent a lot of time with him, and you can learn a lot from them. We go to Galatians 4.15. What happened to this sense of being blessed you had? Again, he's referring to the past when he was with them, either on the first journey or after the second journey, and they were happy with him, and they were being blessed, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Now, of course, Paul's again referring to his physical illness, or, or he may or may not be referring to his physical illness. If his physical illness was his eyesight, and then he's, refer, he's making a reference to that, you would have torn out your eyes, your good eyes, and given to me to take place in my weak eyes. Paul, again, is appealing to their experience. Their love for him, their love for Jesus, their freedom from the law. and says, well, what happened to that? You want to go back under the weak and, elemental, weak and bankrupt elemental principles of the law now? You were blessed back then. But what's happened to this sense of blessing? It's gone. Gone with the wind. Ain't ever coming back again. You get under legalism and you will be the most miserable human being that's ever existed. You ask any Christian who's been under the law and tell, ask him what it feels like to get out from under it. Legalism always kills joy and blessing. Now, when Paul says, you would have torn out your eyes, of course, that's one of the most dearest members of your body. We say, I'd give my right arm for that person. Well, that right arm is, that's quite a sacrifice. That doesn't compare to giving somebody your eyes. Galatians four sixteen. have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Telling the truth to someone will often make him your enemy, as the NIV study Bible points out. And I point out that Paul always had the courage to tell the truth. When did he not tell the truth? He was the most blunt, direct apostle you could ask for. Now, this question was probably more than a rhetorical one. Have I become your enemy? The Judaizers probably had turned Galatians against Paul, actually. So Paul's not just talking about a hypothetical possibility that the Galatians might become his enemy. But he's talking about actual enemies. They have become his enemies. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here's some good relevant scriptures. Psalm 145, Psalm, Psalms 141, verse 5. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me, it is all for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. Hit me if you want to tell me the truth. It's a loving thing to do. Don't make me your enemy, make me your friend. Proverbs nine eight. Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And Paul is saying, Look, I'm I'm rebuking you, Galatians, be wise and love me. Don't be my enemy, because if you might be my enemy, if you mock what I'm saying and you hate what I'm saying, you become a mocker, you become a fool. You know, rebuke of the is like casting pearls before swine. Jesus said, don't do that. When people have this attitude, they're not going to listen to you. Keep quiet. Go to somebody who is willing to listen. Paul knows the Galatians are still willing to listen. He still loves them. He knows they're his brothers and his children. And so he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's a rhetorical question that expects expect to know for an answer. No, you're not my enemy. When he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? When did that truth of that legalism is bad, when did he tell them that? Well, it could be on the first journey. James, Jameson Fawcett and Brown denies that. I tend to agree because I wouldn't think the legalism had a chance to pop up yet on the first journey. It could be on the second visit to Galatian at the conclusion of the second journey, Acts 18.23. James Foster and Brown said this is more likely. He says that's when it happens, and I believe that's probably true. This is when Paul had to start dealing with that legalism and telling them the truth. This is in Acts 18.23, and after spending some time there in Antioch after the second journey, he set out traveling through one place after another in the Galatian territory in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That was the beginning of the third journey, actually, when he started out in the Galatian territory. Galatians 4.17, they are enthusiastic about you. Talking about the legalists, the Judaizers. They're enthusiastic about you, but not for any good. Instead, they want to isolate you so you will be enthusiastic about them. Now, there's one thing about false teachers. They love to have a crowd. They love to have people follow them. They're not just content to teach wrong doctrine academically. They desire a following. I Watched a good friend of mine, whose church was infected with the virus of hyperproterism, and I watched the hyperproterists as they tried to seduce one person after another and have secret Bible studies and Let's have a talk. Let's be open. It's just a matter of eschatology. It's not a matter of doctrinal orthodoxy. And every lie, every stinking lie that the devil could manufacture was just presented to the church in dulcet tones through the mouths of people who claimed to be brothers, and, I, and I, I assume they were Christians, but they were false teachers and they weren't content just to hold to their own false teaching. In fact, one of the positions of that church was, well, you can believe this heresy, you can believe this nonsense that there's no resurrection of the dead, but you've got to keep quiet about it. And they refused to do it. They could have done that and stayed in the church, but they refused to do it. It's kind of like, well, you can be a homosexual in the church as long as you don't practice it. And, well, you can be a hyper heretic in the church as long as you don't practice it. They wouldn't do it because heretics have got to spread the word of their heresy. They just can't help it. It's in their nature. And they're enthusiastic about it. You watch the average cultist, a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, you see how enthusiastic those guys are. They're very enthusiastic. And Paul is saying these Judaizers are enthusiastic too. They were noted for their zeal. Look at Galatians one fourteen. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Paul himself was zealous for that which was not true, legalism. Matthew twenty-three fifteen, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. So Jesus noted that about the Pharisees. They weren't content just to hold it to themselves academically. They got to spread it. They got to travel over land and sea to to spread their their filth. Romans 10.2, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I don't remember what particular group that Paul was blasting in Romans 10.2. I didn't look it up. But whoever they were, they had zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. So we've got two kinds of zeal. We can be zealous for the truth and zealous for lies. People that are preaching lies, they're zealous for their lie. We have to combat that with being zealous for the truth. And Paul says that in Galatians 4.18. Now, it is always good to be enthusiastic about good, and not just when I'm with you. Enthusiastic is the same thing as zealous. NIV translates it as zealous. It's always good to be zealous about good, just like these heretics are zealous or enthusiastic about their heresy. And not just when I'm with you. In other words, hey, when the cat's away, the mouse will play. I was with you. You were enthusiastic for free grace. Now I'm away. You're being enthusiastic for legalism. So let's, let's be enthusiastic about free grace and liberty in Christ when I'm absent. Also, Paul could be referring to the, to the Galatians being enthusiastic when he was with them on the second journey. Again, it's hard to say because at some point in his dealings with the Galatians, they started getting peeled away by the, the legalists. All right, let's go to the last two verses of this section, Galatians 4, verses 19 through 20. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Now notice that Paul calls the Galatians children. This is the only time in Paul's writing that Paul uses this affectionate term. Not just to the Galatians, but to anybody, according to the NIV Study Bible. John used it all the time, but not Paul. However, he does refer to himself as a father. He was the father of the Corinthian church. First Corinthians 4, verse 15. For you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's because he led them into conversion. Paul had a very affectionate relationship with his converts. A, The affection of a father, actually. In Acts 20, verses 37 through 38, he's talking to the Ephesian elders down at Miletus. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. That must have been rough. But notice they're crying over him. That's how much they love the man. Paul spent a lot of his time in Ephesus, of course, about three and a half years, and he had gotten to know a lot of people around in the churches in that area, including the elders of the various churches. And he's speaking to some of them there, and they're crying. That's how close they were. Paul was a good man. He was very rough, and he was very direct when he had to be. But when he was talking with his children, he was, he was very kind to them. Philippians 4.1. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. My brothers, dearly loved and longed for. 1 Thessalonians two seven and eight. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. He's saying I could have come in here and been a big shot apostle and let you guys have it in Thessalonica. Some of them, if I remember correctly, weren't working, but instead he was gentle as a nursing mother. So Paul, he knew when to hold him and he knew when to fold him. He knew when to be gentle and nice and kind, and then at the other hand, on the other hand, when he had to deal with the protection of his flock, he came out with all of his guns blazing. He came out like Buford Pusser with a stick. Paul spoke turns of endearment to his children when they were flying right, but he tore into them when they were on a self-destructive path. And he certainly tore into the opponents of his children, the false apostles who didn't believe at all. Now, Paul says, I am suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you, the the." analogy is a little baby is formed in the mother's womb and as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it's getting ready to get born the mama starts having labor pains and so what paul is saying listen i got you born and your little baby you're a little fetus and you're growing and growing and growing and oh my goodness you're about to be born born and cast out into the world as a mature christian i'm getting i'm suffering labor pains for you because When the full baby is born, that means when the Galatian church is raised to maturity, that's the full, complete, mature baby, it it ain't here yet. And I'm suffering labor pains trying to give birth to you guys. So how about fly right and get rid of these Judaizers? Now, he says, I'm trying to have Christ formed in you. I'm waiting for you. I'm going to have labor pains until that great day when Christ is formed in you. That's the goal of Paul's ministry, is to form Christ in his disciples. Romans 8:29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Formed or conformed it's pretty close, is it not? to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the purpose of growth in the Christian life. These, passage, these scriptures I'm going to give you now are talking about growing up into Christ, into the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Growing up to who we're supposed to be in Christ. Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way unto him who is the head, Christ. Colossians one twenty seven. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus in us reflects that glory of God. The public manifestations of God's excellent characteristics are reflected in Christ, and Christ is in you, so you're going to do the same thing. You're going to reflect Christ's glory, and of course that takes growing to do that. This idea of him having labor pains until he presents the Galatians as a, a full born uh, human being in Christ, if you will. Here's what Adam Clark has to say about it. Quote, he had been the means of bringing them to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, he represents himself as suffering the same anxiety and distress which he endured at first when he preached the gospel to them, when their conversion to Christianity was a matter of great doubt and uncertainty. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, Paul tells the Galatians, I don't know what to do about you. King James says, I stand in doubt of you. The NIV says, I am perplexed about you. But I like the Christian Standard Version translation. I don't know what to do with you guys. I don't know what to do about you. (laughs) Now, this word again in verse 19 indicates something. My children, I am again suffering labor pains. When did he suffer labor pains before? Well, again, it could have been on the first missionary journey when he first tried to make Christ be formed in the Galatians, or it could be at the end of the second journey, the beginning of the third, when he preached in the regions of Galatia, in Acts 18:23, where we read that. At any rate, he is doing it again while he's writing this letter. He's again trying to get Christ formed in him and in, in them. That's his goal. Now he says, "I would like to change my tone of voice." He's referring to the tone of voice of the letter, which is pretty rough, as we know. He's saying, I don't like talking to you like this. I'd much rather be very nice and gentle. But unfortunately, you've made it necessary because you ain't flying right. He can't change his tone of voice with a letter. He has to have a personal presence. So he expresses a belief to visit them again, which as far as we know, he did never do. He did not ever do. So ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. We will, in our next audio, turn to Galatians 4, starting with verse 21, and we'll finish up chapter 4. In the last part of chapter 4, we're going to read about Hagar and Sarah, which two women Paul uses to create his only allegory ever written in the Scripture in the New Testament. The allegory of Hagar. Hagar representing the law and Sarah representing freedom in Christ. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.